What's up, guys? It's Michael Weaver from Indianapolis, Indiana, with Chris Miner in Brownsburg, Indiana. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well, thanks. Great. Well, Chris is an old friend of mine, probably 15 years or so. Uh, at least. <laughs> so I'm excited to have him on the show today because he always offers uh, a lot of insights on things you might not have even known you needed insights on, and uh, he just brings a lot of value. So, um, Chris, why don't you give me a little bit of introduction about yourself, and uh, you know, we'll just start there. Sure, sure. So, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Miner. I am a mortgage banker and have been for my entire professional career. Which, gosh, I guess I have to do some math now. That's about uh, twenty. Eight years at this point in time. So uh, I've seen a lot during that period. That is interesting. Chris, you have a lot of experience um, with that many years in the business at, at different, uh, different companies, uh, obviously a lot of different processes with those different companies. Um, uh, today, I'd really like to kind of delve into that. Why don't you start us uh, with sort of the, the companies that you've been through, um, you know, one of the ones I was thinking about uh, before the episode today is, uh, was Western Gunslinging Mortgages. You know, it was one company you were there for just a, a short time, but but you've got so much experience from from big companies like Bank of, Bank of America to little guys like that where, you know, just some, some rich guy in Texas owned a mortgage company. And, and so you've got a lot of experience and now you're at, at Union Home, you know, and uh, so we, just give us a little bit of walkthrough. Why is one company better than another and and is there a difference all of that great question um and yes i have been in a few places in those 28 some years it, it's interesting i think some of that is because of different uh times you you are in your career in general and then there's also been some time frames where it's been more beneficial to be with a different type of company i, I guess i can touch really quickly on the, the basic types of mortgage companies there's really in my estimation, there's really three main types of companies. There might be subsets of that, but the three main types would be a mortgage broker, a correspondent lender, and then a full-service mortgage banking company. And, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to each of those, depending on what side of the fence you're, you're on. Um, in a nutshell, a mortgage broker is generally a smaller entity that finds customers and then, for all intents and purposes, sell those sells those customers to larger companies. They really, they're not as involved in the process. They're not the company that has the money. Um, they're not the company that approves the loan. Um, in some cases, they don't even process the loan. But some brokers do process also. So the benefits to that, first and foremost, would be they have a, a blank slate as far as how many outlets they may have. They may have 50 different mortgage companies they can sell those loans to. So they may have some incredibly unique niche programs that they can utilize. Um, the downside would be uh, sometimes when you're a jack of all trades, you're a master of none, and you, you don't you don't know all the ins and outs of those 50 different companies because you don't send enough business to any one of them to know. You're also kind of a small fish to them. If something goes wrong, they're not going to stand behind it so that you don't look bad. 
So there's some issues like that to contend with. Um, and that's, I, I started in the business straight out of college with a mortgage broker. That's how I learned. I was at one for about a year and a half. So I saw that side of it. Um, from, you know, the, the next step in the types of companies would be the correspondent lender. The difference with a correspondent lender is they do most of the functionalities in mortgage banking. Uh, they do find the customer like the broker, but in addition, they definitely process the loan. They definitely underwrite the loan. They close the loan and um, they fund the loan with their money. So they're maintaining control of it up through closing. So from a service perspective, I think they can provide a lot better service than a broker because they're, they're in control. Um, Main difference then is generally that loan gets sold to a larger company before the first payment is ever made. There's a lot of protections in place. They can't change any of the contractual things the borrower has entered into, but um, there can be little things that, that can be annoying to customers. When you start down that path, your loan almost can become more of a commodity and you may find that your loan gets sold more frequently. So. Um, you know, a, a pro would be they control the process all the way through, um, which is a very big one. Um, a couple of cons might be, you know, the loan is going to get sold. Sometimes they don't know who it's going to get sold to. Sometimes as a correspondent lender, you kind of have to underwrite to the, the lowest common denominator. If, if you might sell that loan to five different places, you need to know what the, the guidelines are for all five and make sure that you have it covered for whoever you might be selling it to. So that, that might be a downside. Um, a full service mortgage banking company is the third. And really they just, they maintain control of all of it through closing and they also keep the loan from a servicing standpoint. So the customer makes their payment to that company indefinitely. So um, the good things, obviously complete control. Um, the bad things might be, you know, you may not have quite as many options. If you want super niche stuff, if you want the ability to go to the absolute lowest credit score that can be had, um, your company may not do that. Um, from a loan officer's perspective, it's sometimes a blessing and a curse to have the servicing aspect. It's great because you're able to maintain a lifelong relationship with your customers. It can be challenging sometimes if you have hundreds and thousands of customers, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of customers that that look to you for answers on their mortgage loan. That's a lot of extra work that you have to process in. So something to think about. Do you? So that's kind of just a primer on the on the main kinds. Cool. Thank you. And uh, do you find uh, do you find the loyalty in? the long term uh, from folks as far as, uh, you know, you service Mrs. Jones's loan. Are you finding that those people would actually stay with their, I actually have seen it happen, but it was, it's also pretty easy for them to say, hey, have you checked out this person? And they they drop them like a minute. But do you find uh, that having that long-term relationship will actually pay off broader? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, Yeah, in order of magnitude, still have that human element that of you know the, the shiny thing in the corner or, or if they're told to go someplace else a good number of people will but if they're
used to a particular company, and if they've had issues that I've been able to help them with over the years, yeah, the odds of them coming back to me obviously are greater. You know, my we, we're a full service mortgage company. I don't think I covered that. Um, so we do service the loans as well. And you know, every month when they pay their mortgage, they get to see my ugly mug and my contact information. So they're reminded who their loan officer was. And in sales in general, be it real estate or mortgage, that's one of the biggest downfalls is people don't stay in touch with people. Oh, yeah. They forget who they used even. Um, so there's some built-in things to help that with a full-service mortgage. It, it is, to be honest, it's one of the more frustrating things in my business um, when I talk to somebody and they, you could tell they're never going to switch realtors. And they're, you know, they're, I have a realtor. I have a realtor. Like, oh, great. Who who do you work with? You know, I've done it for a long time, too, not 28 years. But I know a lot of people. I've heard a lot of, of people, too. And and um, when they're like, oh, ah, ah. And it's like they just drop the ball. Like, right then, you're like, you just talk them up so much. And you don't even know their name. <laughs> well, in sales, we, we probably would like to think we are remembered more than are oh sure you know there's there's i have family members that you know i've been doing this for almost three decades and i'll still hear what do you do again yeah or, yeah i wrote your loan duh yeah yeah can i can i get a motorcycle loan from you a motorcycle loan no oh i i've heard it i've heard all of it hey you know what though at the same time i love that right like they're thinking of you as soon as they need money like, like you're the guy. Like to me, uh, I, I have people ask me about barn dominiums. Like, hey, can you get me into a barn dominium? It's like, no, no. But thanks for thinking of me, you know. But <laughs> those are becoming a bigger deal. They are. They are. It's uh, it's crazy how, uh, especially where I live, out you know, Hancock County. There's lots of places that people are, you know, thinking that they can put one of those. But um, yeah. So unique housing trends. Like someone was telling me about a car dominium for people that like have fancy cars it's their house is kind of built around their cool cars they pull their car in and their living space is all around where their car is parked interesting so, so many neat things like that yeah i wish i'd have had you uh bring in like a a visual that would have been a pretty cool <laughs> thing um but so so tell me union home uh this is this is where you're at now Tell me, uh, and you, I think you did touch on it, that you were full service, so you do the loan from start to finish, and then you service after. Um, this is this is where you're at in your career. You said that you know different times have brought brought you different places, but do you feel um, in the market that we're in, um, you would ever need to change? I mean, not not saying this in a negative way, but do you feel like this is a place that um, at the moment no. At the moment, no. But but times can change that too. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of the servicing aspect for the lifelong customer retention. But I will tell you, you know, I switched to a correspondent lender um, uh, in and around 2011 because, from a regulatory standpoint, after the housing collapse. The mortgage companies that also did servicing had a larger target painted on them, and it was more difficult to get loans approved at those types of institutions. So a lot of the career loan officers um, have really 
leverage to correspondent lenders to keep their business partners happy. You know, we get referrals from builders, real estate agents, attorneys, uh, financial planners, and they we're an extension of them. So if we make them look bad very often, they will stop giving us referrals. Sure. So at that point in time, it was necessary to switch to a, a, the type of company that could service their referrals better. So I actually have been talking about this topic, um, talked with you prior to the uh, recording, and then um, just just different odds and ends. I, I have been looking at what would be the opportunities for us to open up a mortgage uh, brokerage. And one of the challenges that I have been brought up, or something that's been brought up to me is the fact that if you are a correspondent uh, or a, a broker, that you have to or you should hire someone to manage all of the paperwork because right. every so often you'll get audited. Right. And if you don't have the person to do said job, you're now taking away from your productivity to do your paperwork. Do you find uh, that being a, a large challenge or that's actually a small drop in what other challenges are, are actually larger? <laughs> uh, there is a lot more to that than people realize. You know, I think I think to be a mortgage broker can be an approachable thing if you can mitigate some of the risk factors. Um, you're not going to be able to live very well in the space of customers that are in the gray areas of qualifying because it's what's called third-party origination. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an inherent risk hard-baked into the system for things that are third-party originated. That is where the person who is writing the loan is not an employee of the company giving the loan. It's akin to you know, the, the teenage boy who's a great driver, but he's going to pay a lot more insurance than, than you know, someone who's my age. Who's, who's driving? Yeah. Um, statistically, you know, the actuarial tables are going to show that those, that's a riskier proposition. So, um, yeah, it's just evaluated differently. So, if you can do cleaner deals as a broker, and you don't have to worry about that as much, there isn't as much paperwork. Honestly, it's really when you get into the correspondence side when you're doing a lot more the processing and underwriting funding where that becomes an issue. Um, it's an interesting topic. How do you feel that people can um, choose necessarily their how their clients are? You know, right? When you said if you can do this, how does one go about only working with that kind of customer? It tends to work itself out because as you aren't able to get those deals done, the people who would be the ones who give them to you will stop getting them to you. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, um, and, you know, interestingly, often, this isn't always the case, but, but I, can, I can think back in my career, and, you know, generally, you can look at a referral source and get a flavor of the type of referrals you have gotten from that person. So it just changes the type of referral source that you're looking for, really. Okay. So that's your business. How would you how would you think someone in my business could do that? Right? Like 
I understand yeah. what you're saying is the type of realtor that you do business with will bring you that type of business. How would you, yeah. how would you correlate someone who is in mine, um, short of only only advertising in one neighborhood that's already got a certain person that lives there? Where do you go to find? You know, I'm sure realtors are going to be listening to this, and they only want to work with X customers or Y customers. Right. Well, you have to be careful not to flirt with any of the um, the rules and laws around who you'll do business with. Because, oh, you know. Yeah. So, so, but, but if you're talking about just trying to increase your odds of finding the type of customer that you really want. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about more clean deals. Let me let me clarify. Actually, that's a good point. So let me clarify. There have been times in my career when I thought I literally had a, I had crazy written on my card. Send me the crazies. And it was because the deal went absolutely crazy uh, through the process. If it wasn't one thing, it was another. And um, so there, you know, I've had those times in my life when it had has been not the standard. Right. And, and I don't know what I do different uh, when I don't have those times in my life. But it would be nice to, to be able to define what is being done differently um, to yeah. get that. So I, yeah, definitely not redlining. That's not my, that wasn't, but that's a good point that you should. Yeah, I know, I know. But I think, I think, I guess the salient point I was trying to make is sometimes you, you get what you ask for. So make sure you're asking for what you want. So very good going about your marketing. If you know that there's a certain price range of homes that are going to represent more of what you're looking for, or maybe you spend more energy in that price range of homes or in that section of, of town. You know, if, um, if, you know, up by where you live, if there are higher priced homes, maybe spend more time advertising in your local market because you will, you'll mitigate some of that. Okay. There are some areas that might have the opposite. So maybe you, you spend less energy on some of those areas. Yeah. But I also think, Setting expectations with people out, out of the gate can go a long way towards that. You know, if I'm honest, I probably try to help more people than I should. I, I really do. It's, it's a character flaw with, with what I do because the harder deals take 10 times the amount of effort. And the proclivity for them to be mad at you is 10 times more. <laughs> So that, those don't those two things don't stack up well against each other, right? Right. And you usually you usually don't make this money the same amount of money either. Usually, I find the ones that you work the hardest for, you make the least amount. Yeah. So I guess to answer your question, the best way in my mind would just be to say no more often. So we're definitely going to have to. Go ahead. I was going to say when you've done this as long as we have, you have a decent idea from day one. <laughs> Just do. That is true. I do have I do have a sense sometimes that this is going to be a big struggle. Um, so definitely, I think we're going to have to do an episode where um, you go into that uh, fully as to what a loan looks like, because I think a lot of people don't realize what you uh, as a mortgage lender does. And so going into a full process, I think we'll have to explore that one time. So um, I think people would enjoy that because it's so much different. In, in today's Amazonified world, people want things done now. And we are so heavily regulated by the federal government that the people are maddened by the rules that, that don't seem to make any sense on the surface. So I think that would be worthwhile. 
Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that, what are the two new guideline changes that uh, can help more people get approved? Yeah. So um, those come out in two days. <laughs> so not today, not tomorrow. Um, so that would be September 18th for those if this is already. Correct. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank you for September that. 18th, 2021. I, think, I mean, both of these are fairly big deals for the right have to know the history i mean the first is a super big deal the first has to do with credit scores so i'll give you a small amount of backstory there are three major national credit repositories and for each person that wants to get a mortgage we we pull from all three of those Mm -hmm. and we're required to use the middle score of those three for determining if they qualify for a certain program that's the score that gets logged into the automated underwriting systems that pulls the algorithms to see if it gets an automated underwriting approval out of the gate. When there are two borrowers on on a loan, we look at the middle score of each of them. And for the entire time I've been in the business, we then use the lower of those two. Sometimes people have widely different scores for whatever reason. Maybe they've gotten married recently and one was way better with their money than the other, Uh, but you have to use both incomes. So the difference now, instead of having, instead of having to use the lower of the two scores, we now can average the two scores on conventional loans. This is only on conventional loans. Uh, And that's another topic too. We can talk about different loan products, but Uh, On the conventional lending side, we now can take the two middle scores and average them together to come up with whether they qualify for a program and for what the automated underwriting system will will give us if it will approve it out of the gate. Awesome. That's a big deal. What's the minimum someone has to have for a a conventional with... uh, 620. No, I mean down payment wise. What can we get into? Got it. Uh, 3%. You have to have pretty good credit uh, to not have your rate get trashed pretty good with the 3% down program. Okay. And conventional is different than some of the government programs too in that we can do a credit score of 620, but the conventional loans are more heavily weighted on credit score with how affordable they are. Um, If you're flirting with that 620 score, your rate, your interest rate is going to be appreciably different than what you see advertised. Um, when they advertise them, they don't they don't give the worst case scenario as you might as you might imagine. Yeah, and, and moreover, it's not just the interest rate that's affected. Um, there's something called mortgage insurance. When when you put less than twenty percent down on a house and you utilize a conventional loan, you have to pay something called mortgage insurance. It's not insurance that does anything for you, that helps you get you get the loan. It's it's protection for the lender. But when your credit's not good, that's higher. Also, on conventional loan. Okay. Um, now, on that topic, uh, mortgage insurance, you can get it off if you're conventional, but you have to refi if you're FHA. Is that correct? Good question. So, it's very different with every type of loan. So, that's okay. probably something more we can dig into. But, but speaking about conventional, yes, you can have it removed down the line don't even necessarily have to refinance your loan. There are some some ways that you can do it. 
Um, if it's from just the natural process of paying down your loan over time, um, it's supposed to automatically come off when you're at 78% loan to value. That's just the law that went into effect a while back. So it'll automatically drop off at some point, even if you do nothing. You can petition your mortgage lender to get it removed prior to that if you have um, made extra payments, if you've made a lump sum payment towards your loan. Um, you also have the option to get a new appraisal. You know, in, in this market, values have been going up so fast that there's a lot of people that may have just got a loan with 5% down a year, year and a half ago that might be in a position to get a new appraisal today mm -hmm. and get that mortgage insurance removed, yeah. um, which could lower their payment quite a bit. We are seeing that people also can refinance to do that, to your point. And the reason for doing that would be, you know, rates are probably lower as well. So yeah. it can be a double whammy for them. They could get a better rate and get rid of mortgage insurance at the same time. And we've been seeing a lot of that. Okay. So that was one guideline. What was the, what was the second guideline that you, uh, are seeing? Yeah, it's, it's relative to, um, rent payments. So the, the, um, Fannie Mae, uh, automated underwriting program now will read when we use, uh, the digital formats for, for getting assets for customers, which is what we do a lot now. And what I mean by that is instead of having to ask for bank statements, we can have them uh, give us permission. And most of the banks now are on a central database. We can get that data without having them provide it to us. Uh, but that system reads their bank statements to find rent payments. And if it can see that they've made their rent payment for the last 12 months, it factors that into their algorithm and their decision-making process, whether to approve the loan. Now, your housing payment history is one of the biggest determiners of getting a positive result. If someone has great payment history on their house, it makes your mortgage lender feel pretty good about giving that personal loan. Yeah. Conversely, if you don't, you know, not as much. Now, the one nice thing about this is it, it is a positive-only enhancement. It can't negatively hurt them. But if the data is there for it to positively help them, it will factor that into the credit decision. So there's a lot of people that are younger that maybe have been renting for a year but have very, very limited credit history other than that. This will especially help people that are in that situation. Very good. So um, that was actually one of the most exciting things I had learned from you um, was um, just what you needed to qualify for to, uh, to get a loan. And I think you gave me numbers of people making is it thirty thousand a year with no debt uh, could make uh, could could buy a house of like two hundred ninety thousand um, dollars. I don't remember the the data there, but what is what is surprising to people is to what degree debt factors in. Because the question I get a lot is, I make X, how much house can I afford? Yeah, I don't have the first clue uh, because. Bigger question is how much other debt do you have? Right, right. So that's what gets factored in. So someone that has little or no debt, to your point, can make a fairly modest income and will be surprised how much house they can afford 
Contrastedly, you can have some people that make an enormous income that have that think they should qualify for a lot that owe a lot of money that have problems. What do you see uh, over the past, I'll say three to five years, people in their mid, like I'll, I'll stretch it from mid to late 20s all the way up to mid to late 40s. So that 20 year gap when you're doing their loans, what does their financial picture look like for, for most people? Uh, debt, income, money in the bank, retirement, that, that sort of thing. What does that picture look like for you? Um, it varies quite a bit, as you might imagine. But it is it's sobering to see how many people have a lot of debt and don't have a lot of money saved. That seems to be a very systemic issue, I think, in our society is that, you know, marketing is always telling people they need to get the newest and coolest of everything, and uh, they must be doing a good job because people often have the newest and coolest of things that maybe have modest budgets to have those things. Yeah. So that, that's the biggest issue probably is, is lack of down payment funds and um, the proportion of their debt relative to their income is a challenge. Would you say it's like shoestring? Like uh, if if times get tough for three months, game over? Or yeah, that's that's the issue. And and to your point, you know that's one of the things that we look at most closely because it's common sense. If we're going to loan to someone on the very upper end of the debt to income spectrum. You know, they owe more than we would like to see them owe relative to what they're buying. Um, what can bridge that gap for us is to see how much reserves they have. In other words, how long can they survive if times get tough? Do they have three months of their payment in the bank? And interestingly enough, I mean, just having three months of their payment left in the bank after closing is a big deal. That makes a huge difference to us. But having nothing... And having high debt ratios is not a great company. Would you say that most people max out debt to income? Uh, the most common question I get is, what is the maximum amount I can qualify for? Yeah? <laughs> yes. So and, so would you say 80% of people are, or 90%? It, it, probably more like 90, yeah, because... Especially in this market, what happens is, I mean, you typically can't even buy a house for what it's listed for, right? That's so, true. And I, and I try to, so I'll, I'll give people, I, I've changed that a little bit because what was happening is I would give them their max budget. They would search for their max budget in a house, and then they'd have to spend 10, 15, 20,000 more than that to get it. And now I'm challenged to trying to find a way to make it work. Yeah. So I've learned a little bit to back that down a little bit. With that in mind, if I know that their max budget is 160, you know, I might be starting them off at 150. Um, with that in mind, um, what are you seeing strategy-wise that's getting your customers uh, homes? Um, one thing that I saw you do. How to make offers? Yeah, like one thing I saw that you uh, were promoting, I thought was great, was. Um, 
when your customer gets uh, an offer written, you as the lender will send a video message saying, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Realtor or seller, whatever, just wanted to let you know that the Smiths are well pre-approved. Um, but what other, what other little things are, are you seeing that are written in the purchase agreements when you get an accepted that you're like, oh, that was smart. That was a good thing. Yeah. Well, it, smart is relative because some of them, I think, maybe aren't smart, but they help get the deal. And I'll qualify that. No, I know, I know where you're going, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, one of the first ones is waiving inspections. Right. Um, you know, especially on older homes. You know, um, that's something the sellers are worried about. Sure. So that's one of the first things that, you know, a, a, agents will advise the clients to consider mm-hmm. uh, is that'll, that'll differentiate their offer. If they're willing to take the house without asking for anything to be fixed, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, another big, big one is the appraisal gap coverage. And what that means is in this market, there's, there's a lot of people, if not the majority of people, that are willing to spend more than the house is listed for to get it, mm-hmm. which is fine in and of itself, but if they're getting a mortgage, they're going to be constrained to what the home will appraise for. Correct. Uh, and that appraisal is going to look at other homes in the area that are like it and, and compare subject property to that. So if the appraisal comes in less than... What someone has agreed to pay for the house, what do you do? Um, so what people are doing that are smart, that have a little bit of cash over and above their down payment, is they're writing into their, their well, I'm writing into the pre-approval, they're writing into the contract, that they'll, they'll cover a certain amount of that. Like, you know, it'll say something like, we'll cover the first five, our first 5,000 of any appraisal shortage. Yeah. Sellers love that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if it appraises low, it gives the borrower or the customer an opportunity to renegotiate back to that appraisal amount. Yeah, and that's not what they want. Right. So, appraisal gap is a big is a big one right now. Um, obviously, cash offers are a big deal, but hey, I hate those. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm involved with those. It's funny. Um, yeah, cash offers are a big deal, and interestingly. There's been a fair number of people here recently that I'm working with that, um, you know, they want a mortgage, but they have the cash. So they'll buy the house with cash and come back and finance the mortgage afterwards. Yeah. So that they're all looked at better. Yeah. So that's a thing too. Um, I think, I think that a customer's choice in lender goes a long way towards that. And I won't pick on any internet companies that we all know the name of. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the, the listing agents have experience with the likelihood of a deal going south. And it's generally based on how inexperienced the loan officer working the deal is, right? Yeah. Um, oh sure, we can get this done. This will be no problem. Right. They don't, and they, they don't, don't know. know what to ask or what guidelines are. Yeah. So, so using a local company that people know, uh, that realtors know, can make a difference too. You know, I, I've talked a lot about. You've heard me talk about uh, a 
appraisal management companies. That's a big deal too. That I think more people, more agents should be looking at in the offer process. Some of your best lenders do not use appraisal management companies. They self-manage their rotation of appraisers. So um, there isn't someone taking a cut of the appraisal fee. There isn't another appraisal underwriter looking over their shoulder asking them why they did something. You're not going to get your most experienced appraisers to work in that environment. So I guess all that to say the likelihood of a low appraisal is greater when they're, when they're using a lender that, ha- that uses an appraisal management company. So if you're the seller and you know you've got a great price on your house and you're worried about it appraising for enough, maybe factor in there who the lender is and whether they use an appraisal management company, if that makes sense. So I'll use... Uh... You know, just just a pointed question because that's the whole point of why I want to do these is to to do things yeah. that I think other people won't. How do you, as a name that I wouldn't necessarily recognize as a big brand, ensure that your realtors are representing all of those benefits in their offer? Is there a way to do it mass, or are you stuck doing it a one off like? your realtor partner, like, hey, make sure that you tell them all this stuff. Is there any way, any tools in your tool belt that you could broadcast that? I'm not sure if I completely understand, but I'll tell you what I think. What I'm seeing more and more is that the listing agents are calling the lenders of the of the top contending offers mm-hmm. and asking pointed questions. Um, and they really should be. If you have 10 offers, yeah. four of them are pretty good, you probably want to ask that lender, do you have the customer's documents? I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Otherwise, the lender is strictly going off of what the customer has told them on the phone, most likely. So asking them if they have the customer doc- documents is a big deal. Do you have an automated underwriting approval is a big deal. And these are questions that they can ask, you know, um, whether or not that company uses an appraisal management company is a question they can ask. Yeah. They can't ask anything specific about the borrower's finances, but they can ask some questions like that. What I get asked a lot is, do you see any issues with this transaction? (laughs) That's probably the most general one that I get most of the time. Well, uh, there is this one thing. Well... It's funny, and if they're smart, they realize the lender isn't supposed to tell them specifics, but you can tell a lot by how someone answers a question, even if they're not giving you direct answers. Yeah, I well, I, sometimes, because if, if I don't know the person per se, I could just chalk it up to, well, they're an idiot type, you know, lender, and this is just going to be a terrible situation, and, you know, but I get what your point is. So I think that's one way that you could tell, as, as a listing agent anyway, Yeah. Um, ask those questions. On, on the buyer's agent side, it's just knowing all those tricks and seeing what your buyer is comfortable with. You know, they're at risk if they waive an inspection. So it, it's, are they comfortable with that? All you can do is give them the options and let them pick. Um, 
Two questions on appraisal gaps. What is the most you've seen? And have you figured out if there is a percentage that people are doing or is it more based on numbers? Let me qualify that. Are you finding people are saying, oh, 5,000 over or 10,000 over? Or are you seeing people saying, well, let's do like 3% over and figure out what that is. And so it's like $7,250 or like, what is the max? And then what kind of are you seeing as an average of people going over on your, on your side? I don't recall having seen it expressed as a percentage. I think it's usually a dollar amount. Right. Um, And it's, it's, it's widely varying, but generally more, probably more attributed to the transaction size. You know, if it's, if it's under 200, you're more likely to have it be five, 10,000. That was my question is actually. Yeah. If it's 500, $600,000 transaction, you know, it could be 20, 30, $40,000. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it should be relative to what the data suggests from a comp standpoint also. You know, what do the comps suggest? Um, the problem with that is we can't because the comps would have would make it a comparable. The issue that I'm seeing anyway is that people are, are paying astronaut Like, they say, hey, I'm going to offer you this, but I'm going to give you X amount because well, I know it's not going to even appraise. I guess what I mean by that is knowing your starting point. In other words, what do the comps suggest relative to the current listing price? Because you may have a listing price that's already $20,000 over what the comps would suggest. Yeah. So you have to know that going into it and not just assume it's going to appraise what they're asking. Well, one of my stories is like we had one that we listed we listed this year at 315. We told them last year it was two and a quarter. So you could already tell they were excited. And I mean, we listed it at a, at a, at a good price, not as something low or even high. Just, a, just this is what the comps are showing is 315. The lowest of 11 offers was 330. And we got it for 370. And it appraised. Wow. So, I mean, it's just, it is so crazy on... I mean, how do you, as a realtor, like, how do you, like, find it out and, and throw a dart at, at what that value is going to be? Because if we thought for a minute it would sell for that, we would have listed it at that. That's a challenge. Um, you know, in a rapidly appreciating market, the current valuation method doesn't really work that well because it works on historical sales. Yeah. So um, part of that's just knowing your market. I guess that could be a challenge if you're working outside of your market a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think all of those things come into play and each transaction is going to be different. And, and, and the fact of the matter is too, is also that, you know, a lot of customers don't have appraisal gap coverage and you may be constrained with what they have available. They may only have 5,000 available if anything. Yeah. So, that's that's what on my that fear was. Too, on that note, too, something you and I know, but we haven't touched on, is um, the type of of loan that's being utilized is is enormously important at the moment. To the point of the vast majority of, of transactions that are getting accepted that I see are on conventional loans. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that conventional loans are the hardest to qualify for, so 
it's basically the better qualified customers are the ones that get conventional loans. So the, I guess the possibility of that loan falling through is less um, from that standpoint. There's less, um, the, the, most of the government loans have some functionality of property condition built into the appraisal. There are certain requirements, and if those requirements aren't met, the seller literally has to fix those issues before the problem, before it can the, the, the transaction can move forward. Conventional doesn't really have that; it's more of a pass fail. It's mostly just health and safety issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, if there's a huge hole in the second floor leading down to the, the first floor, that would be an issue. But um, you know, for the most part. It's, they're pretty easy to get along with. They do have to have a heating source. They don't want you to freeze to death in the winter. Um, but the, yeah, from from a less fall through, from a you know the appraisal is is an easier process. I think it's all those things that are making it such that for someone that needs to get a different type of loan type, like an FHA or a USDA, they're having a lot of problems. That's exactly what I would say, though, is, is I feel like the the problems come not so much for the qualifications anymore, because I feel like FHA has been around long enough that people are comfortable with it. But what they don't want is any hiccup on the appraisal. And they feel like a conventional yes. loan is a lot more um, freeing of that price and condition. And so I feel like that's the reason. I actually lost a deal. We were the higher price, but the uh, um, the the broker had been a mortgage lender, and he couldn't get past the idea that I told him, "Look, my it was my cousin." I was like, "Hey, he's going FHA, or he's going FHA could go conventional, but it's just better for him to do it this way." Um, and I think at the time, I think 5% was the best he could do. So, I mean, it was, he was saving money, you know, and the, yeah. and the guy flat out told me, well, I'm a, I'm, was a loan officer and, um, I, you were the best offer, but we just, we want to go this route. And, and it was just kind of yeah. irritating. Uh, and, and I even told him, Hey, we, yeah, we told him that we're like, Hey, we'll switch to conventional if that's what it takes, you know, yeah. to, to show, but the psychology kicks in there, and, and yeah, it, every seller's different and how they process information. But but yeah, that, that's definitely an issue right now. There there are there are people that flirt with that lower end of the credit score spectrum, closer to that six twenty, where you know they they could do a conventional, but they will get a better deal on an FHA. Yeah, um, the FHA, the mortgage insurance is not driven at all by credit score and the rate is very little so there are some situations where their rate and payment would be better on an fha for for a certain subset of customer but we're having to write them conventional to make it look better (laughs) so yeah that's happening a lot that's awesome well um all right so this is a fun fun topic uh we'll we'll dive out for a little bit what is, uh, for those people who don't know, uh, we did uh, sort of tech training years back, and we called it Tech and Caffeine. Um, but what is your new favorite caffeine delivery mechanism? Oh, boy. I do like <laughs> caffeine. I, I drink prodigious amounts. 
ounce of liquids during the day, mostly water, but I also like caffeine. <laughs> um, you know, I used to have a horrible Starbucks uh, um, habit, and then I started looking at how much money I was spending on that, so I, I started making my own coffee. Um, there's a little device called AeroPress, which is uh, it's it's a French press that is easier to clean. Uh-huh. This is the easiest thing to do, and I I used that for a long, long time, and then I got lazier. A friend of mine got a machine. It's called a Nespresso machine. Yep. And uh, kind of got hooked. Kind of got hooked on that. So um, lately, it's making coffee in my Nespresso machine and adding protein powder to it. Because I'm getting old and have to think about things like that now. Interesting. I like it. Yeah, yeah that's. Uh... Yeah, I still like some of the really bad for you things. Like at the moment, I'm drinking a diet Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not, not. It's not bad. It's diet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and. I, I, I do like uh, some of the flavors in the, the Bang Energy drinks, but I save those for for days when I'm running really low on steam. That's good. So to answer your question, probably the, the Nespresso coffee with, with some protein powder is my favorite. How about you? Um, so my caffeine journey, um, I drank a lot of coffee when I was in real estate school. And going in to the class, uh, I, I remember I'd go to the back and fill up. Uh, I'd probably drink a pot of coffee every day. And then uh, fast forward through life, I got the Keurig. You know, I wanted a Keurig very, very bad. And my wife's like, it was a hundred bucks for, for a Keurig machine. She's like, no way. We're not spending a hundred dollars on a coffee machine. You can get one for $30. You don't even drink coffee that much. And... Um, so this is about 2008, 9, 10, somewhere in that range. So this is a long time ago, but, um, so she got me a, um, a regular coffee maker. It was like $30 and I drank a pot of coffee a day just to prove her wrong that I was going to drink lots of coffee. The next year for Christmas, I got a Keurig. Then, uh, then I, uh, I got a built-in coffee maker that goes in your cabinets, you know, that you, you know. Uh, yeah. make your own like you, you know, and, and like, a, yeah. like an espresso machine. Um, it's a Mila. And, um, that was, I mean, I love that. I could do, I could do, uh, any kind of thing that I would get at Starbucks. I could do at home. Um, right. and, and then about last year, um, I started doing research and I actually don't do caffeine as much as I used to. I will still drink tea, uh, and I I would have a coffee. It's not like I would say no, but it's just I don't drink coffee anymore. Um, yeah. And so my favorite caffeine delivery mechanism would have to be because I've gotten my body off of caffeine, I feel just as energized throughout the day, and I can't I can't explain it to people other than there is a science that that shows. You know, you can only get your body to so much of caffeine. Yeah. And and then you have to keep doing more of that caffeine. To your point, um, I find that, first of all, I really like caffeine. But because <laughs> I really like it, and I understand that principle, semi-frequently, let's call it two or three times a year. You'll fast. I will quit, I yeah. will quit drinking caffeine for two, three, four weeks. Yeah. 
so that I can reset my ability to enjoy it. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to continue to up it. You have to continue to up the ante. And I didn't realize that that was a thing. People would say that if they didn't have their coffee, they would have headaches. Mine was more like, I didn't ever have any of the side effects. I just loved cafe mochas from Starbucks. Like, drink those suckers every day, especially in the winter. It's a drug. <laughs> Did you know it's the only approved drug that is not regulated in the U.S.? I don't know that I had thought that through, but that doesn't surprise me. So, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a drug. Uh, it's a fun one. Uh, <laughs> and it ends legal. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I definitely go through that process of having to reset occasionally because you get to the point where you have diminishing returns. And it is interesting once you've not had any for a month. Yeah. And you have the first cup of coffee. Wow. <laughs> then you realize that it's a drug. Well, and, and that is to your point. That is how I re- realized that it, it was legitimate for this for the reason of like if we would go to like a party or something i would drink like a a mountain dew or or something like that and i mean it was like whoa like what's going on i couldn't sleep i couldn't sleep that night yeah and uh i didn't like that part of it um but anything that i'm not in control of i don't like and the simple fact that um i loved the cafe mocha so much i didn't want to get rid of them not that i couldn't but i just didn't want to um, I got this thing called Dandy, and it's a dandelion herbal that um, it gives me the exact flavor. And I've actually had taste tests at my house where I'll make a coffee out of the machine and the you know the three thousand dollar in the wall, and then like the powder stuff and and stir it, make it, and serve it to people and say which one do you like better? The Dandy has never lost, and uh, yeah, and so I just to me that is just an interesting thing. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I just, when you brought that up, I was like, oh, he's going to flip when I tell him that. <laughs> surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. And, you know, there'll come a point in time in my life where I'll probably cut it out, too, as I continue to get older. Um, I don't have to have it. I just really like it. Yeah. Well, and, and if if it's the flavor that you like, the, the dandy, I will tell you, is is just dandy. <laughs> it, it's it's I, I do like the flavor, but no, that's not the that's not the appeal. Yeah, that's so I funny. Like focus. Well, like focus. it it is definitely a, a a good a good thing and and keeps you keeps you focused. So, um, well, hey, you know, I've taken up uh, we're almost at that hour. I appreciate your time today, and uh, I look forward to our next topics. We'll come up with one and uh, shoot it out there. That sounds good. Thank you. All right. See you later.